Brian. I'm one of the elders here at North Shore. I get to read the scripture for today, which is out of Ephesians 4, chapters, or verses 17 through 24, and then I'll be praying for us. Here's the word of the Lord. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how perfect you are. You're absolutely worthy of all praise that we can, that we can muster. Your name is absolutely higher than every other name. It is the only thing we should boast about. Your works are too wonderful for us to fully grasp, and your saving grace too precious for us not to strive to understand. Help us, Father, this morning to understand you more clearly and to trust in you more fully. Help us to fear you always and to love you without end. And help us to serve those around us without hesitation and to take joy in the fact that you approve of it. Because you are all that really matters, Father. And help us to always keep you first and our everything. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, your word says that the word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides soul and spirit. It opens us up. It exposes what we don't like in our lives. Thank you that we have the word. God, I pray that your word would go forth now in your power, that you would do whatever surgery you need to do on us, so that we might be more like Jesus and that his name might be made much of because of the work that you do in us individually, but God also as a church. We pray that you would do this for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen. Well, we continue, as you just heard Brian um, read from Ephesians chapter 4. This morning we're looking at the second half of the section that we began last week. We saw from this section of the letter until on the rest of the book, this is where he starts really the section that goes to the rest of the book, Paul is fleshing out in very concrete, very practical terms what it means for believers to grow to spiritual maturity in Christ, which I trust all of us want. He puts it this way, maturity that is, in 4.15, he says, growing into him who is the head, into Christ. So Paul defines spiritual maturity as Christ-likeness, being more and more like Jesus. We saw that Paul began these specific instructions about what it means to grow to maturity. He began it with a negative command in verse 17. We looked at last week. He says, now this I say and testify in the Lord 
that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Paul wants to see, or wants the Ephesians to see, and us, that the first step on the road to maturity in Christ is to be careful not to return to the way of life we knew before we were a Christian. Now, it may seem like common sense to teach that believers can't go forward if they're going backwards, which is what he's saying, but Paul is always a realist, and he knows that this dark world has enticements that can tempt even established Christians to fall back into sin, and so he wants to start there. We saw that Paul takes three verses to explain or to spell out the horrible consequences of what it is to not be a Christian. This week, Paul moves on from that sad description of what it is to be an unbeliever to what it is to live out the radical new way of life we have in Christ. And the summary statement of his argument is in verse 20 where he begins, where he's strongly contrasting this new way of life with our former way of life, and he says, but that is not the way you learn Christ. All of these bad things, that's not the way you learn Christ. Paul's tone is urgent here. In most translations, there's an exclamation point. Now, there aren't any exclamation points in the Greek, but I think the interpreters do a good job of saying, yes, he's serious about this. This is a big deal for him. In verses 22 to 24, he gives three elements of how believers who have learned Christ, which is what he says here, how they relate to sin and temptation in the world. Because that's a big part of maturity, isn't it? How we relate to sin and temptation is a big expression of how mature we are in Jesus. But let's begin by asking your question of verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ. That's a good translation. It's not, this is not what you learned about Christ. It's learned Christ. Well, that's a pretty strange way of talking, isn't it? In fact, nowhere else in the New Testament is the Christian life described that way. There are other places where we see similar constructions. Um, Paul says in Ephesians, or I should say Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Again, Paul doesn't say that for him to live is to love Christ, or serve Christ, or obey Christ, although he obviously did all of those things. No, for him, to live is Christ. The point is, Paul is completely wrapped up in the person of Jesus. Paul's life was all about Jesus, loving him, treasuring him, savoring him, seeking after him. The Christianity revealed in the New Testament is radically christ Centered. Again, that may seem like common sense, but it's amazing how many Christians don't live Christ-centered lives. And because Christ is Paul's life, then for him to die is a net gain. Because when he dies, he gets more of Christ. And if you to live as Christ, dying is a good thing. Here in chapter 4, Paul makes a similar point about the utter Christ-centeredness of our spiritual lives. Here in Ephesians, living for Christ is not learning about Christ. Christianity is not mainly an intellectual or academic exercise. Knowledge is important, but that's not what it's mainly about. Christianity is not a religion. It's not fundamentally a faith, though faith is crucial. It's not practicing a certain moral code or following a certain set of rules or traditions or a certain kind of worship. Christianity is certainly not, as some claim, a key to financial prosperity. And neither is it a philosophy of life. 
Our spiritual life isn't any of those things. Any Muslim or Hindu could say most of those things accurately. Christianity is more than any other approach to God, an intimate, lovingly obedient relationship with God through a single, solitary person, Jesus Christ. That means that if it could be definitively proven that Jesus of Nazareth was a myth this week, and it can't because the evidence is overwhelming, but for the sake of argument, if this week it can be definitively proven that Jesus of Nazareth either never existed or was not who he says he was, there'd be absolutely no reason for us to show up next week here. Absolutely none. Except if we vote to disband the church and liquidate the assets. That'd be the only reason we would need to get together. And all of our lives would radically change because Christianity is Christ. You don't have Christ, you don't have anything. So Paul is contrasting living as a believer with living as a pagan. And he teaches that the dramatic difference is 100% grounded in the person of Jesus Christ. In verse 21, he finishes the thought. He says about Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Now, it's not a great translation because literally Paul says, you heard him. You did not hear about him, you heard him. Again, the stress is on relating to a person. The implication is, is if you heard the saving message of the gospel and you responded in faith, you didn't just hear a preacher. You heard Christ personally speaking to you, the living word. This is a personal relationship from the first to the last. Same is true when he speaks of being taught in him. Again, it's not taught about him, taught in him, which means you're taught in the context of your union with Christ, in Christ, your intimate relationship. And because you can learn him and not just learn about him, when you learn him, as Paul says, you learn the truth that is in Jesus. That's what he says. So you personally experience that Jesus isn't simply the head of a religion that makes truth claims. Jesus is the embodiment of truth. He is truth. As we move into verse 22, Paul reminds them what he had taught these Ephesians about living as believers. And here he describes a big part of what it looks like for believers to grow to maturity. This is what it looks like in very practical terms. This is a call to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So he presents these three elements of what it is to live as a Christian. First, actively, present tense, continuously put off the old self. Second, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Third, put on the new self and all of that entails. Now we're only gonna get to the first part this morning, to put off the old self. Now we could describe putting off our old self in fairly quick terms if all we're concerned is just to define what that is. But we wanna understand what that means. And so what we wanna do is we want to look at the larger biblical context into which putting off the old self fits so that we can understand what's involved in that, okay? So we're gonna go back up a bit in biblical history to get the larger picture that the Bible gives about how a Christian becomes more like Jesus. Now what Paul implies here is that a believer must, absolutely must recognize the radically altered relationship a believer has to sin. 
in order to know how to eliminate it from our lives. So if you don't understand the relationship you have to sin, you cannot, according to this text and many others, you can't eliminate it out of your life. So we're going to unpack that a little bit so that we actually know what it is to put off our old self. If you go back to the beginning, to Genesis, God created humanity in his image, and so there was Adam in the garden with no sin. He fell into sin, obviously, and he drugged the rest of humanity with him because we were all represented in him. And though Adam continued to live physically after he ate the fruit, spiritually, Adam died. And God told him, he said, the day you eat of it, you will die. And he did die. He died spiritually. The moment he sinned, and so did Eve. They were spiritually dead from that moment on. And from that moment on, all human beings in Adam were also spiritually dead. And spiritually dead people, like physically dead people, are corrupt and spiritually good for nothing. Their spiritual corruption is seen in that the sin that they had given themselves over to now ruthlessly dominates and enslaves them. So just before God sent his judgment on these people through the flood, here's what he says about them in Genesis 6-5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of their thoughts, of the thoughts of his heart, was only evil continually. Okay, it would be hard to find a more condemning statement than that. Every intention, only evil continuously. So that's God's opinion on fallen humanity. The nature of a spiritually dead person is to be in rebellion against God, which simply means we choose to run our lives our way instead of submitting to God. Now, in some cases, lost people, unsaved people, can be morally excellent people on the outside. Lost people can still be, in some ways, thoughtful, very devout, religious people. But whatever their outward behavior is, inwardly, they're living for themselves. And everything in them is tainted by sin, and it's under the curse of God. Now, after about 4,000 years of sin enslaving humanity, Jesus came to this fallen world. We're going to celebrate that here at the Incarnation of Christmas. Unlike every other human being, Adam, or Jesus, Adam was not the spiritual father of Jesus. Did you know that? Adam was not the spiritual father of Jesus. This is why the virgin birth is so important. So Christ did not inherit the sin nature. God is the father of Jesus. And that means he had no sin nature. He was, in a sense, a limited sense, like Adam before the fall. He lived a perfect life, and because he was without sin, he was therefore qualified to offer his sinless life as a substitute sacrifice to forgive the sins of any sin-filled human who would put their trust in him. The New Testament reveals that for those who trust in Jesus and become part of this new human race in Jesus, God does a number of miraculous things. All of those in this new covenant relationship with God through Jesus are spiritually reborn to spiritual life. Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, 3, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. First we're born into this world by the obstetrician, and then we're born again by the spiritual obstetrician God. We're given physical life in our first birth. We're given spiritual life in our second birth. In born-again people, the spiritual death 
that ruthlessly held Adam and his race enslaved to sin in born-again people, that is banished and it's replaced with spiritual life, not death. Believers have been taken out of the kingdom of Satan, if you will, the kingdom of Adam, and brought into the kingdom of God and his son Jesus. Adam is no longer their spiritual head. If you're a believer, Jesus is your spiritual head. Believers are also given the indwelling Holy Spirit that brings them into actual, real union with Jesus Christ. Their union with Christ means that they spiritually share in his death, in his resurrection, and his ascension. They were joined with him when he did all those things in spirit. It also means that believers receive the same spiritual favor from God that he gives to Jesus. They're declared to be righteous with the very righteousness of Christ. And as we saw in chapter 2, they are even enthroned with Christ in heaven with him. It's amazing. All of that is absolutely true, unalterable for every believer in Jesus Christ. Anyone in Christ is no longer a stranger, but a son of God with an eternal inheritance. And unlike Adam and the old humanity that was enslaved by sin, the believer in union with Christ is a new spiritual creation, created in Christ to do good works and equipped with a new heart that has new desires and new values and new priorities. It's a heart that wants their lives to orbit as tightly as possible around King Jesus. Again, believers have been spiritually raised up above the enslaving power of sin and are empowered to live holy lives by the Holy Spirit. That's the gospel. That all sounds and is perfectly wonderful. But if that's true, and it is, the $64,000 question that we've all asked is, then why do I sin so much? I mean, why do we struggle spiritually so much, and why are we in this constant battle against sin if all of that is true? If we have all of these spiritual blessings in the gospel and are in this exalted spiritual position, indwelt by the Spirit of God, why is it that I so easily fall into sin? Well, our text for this morning implies that a big reason we can struggle so much with sin is because in addition to these wonderful gospel truths about us, there are other truths that also impact how we live for God and how we don't live for God sometimes. A very important truth is that the Bible also teaches that this material world we live in has not been redeemed. It is still fallen. Now you look at the glorious trees out there and you think, I wonder what this place would look like without sin. We won't find out until Jesus comes back. But anyway, these physical bodies that we drag around with us that are part of this material world and don't belong to the kingdom of God and will not belong to the kingdom of God until they're resurrected at the end, the bodies belong to the kingdom of Adam. That means that they are still anchored and contaminated by this fallen, sin-dominated world. That means that while the soul and the spirit of a believer has been released from the power of sin, these physical bodies still share the corrupt qualities of Adam's fallen race and this dark world that's enslaved to sin and Satan. So we see the corruption of these bodies. We age and we die, but that's only part of the corrupt influence that they wield on us. Because these bodies have not yet been redeemed, that means that they are still vulnerable to the enslaving power of sin. 
So, though we have so many spiritual blessings because of who we are in Christ, these bodies are still vulnerable to the powerful pull of sin's allure. According to Paul in Romans chapter 7, housed in these fallen, corrupt bodies is indwelling sin. Now that sin is not a part of us, that is our souls and spirits, but it does indwell these bodies. This is why Paul can say in Romans chapter 7, now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And me means within my body. Do you hear the separation that Paul makes between I, who doesn't want to sin, and the sin that dwells within me? Paul is saying that his personality, his soul and spirit, are spiritually at a polar opposite place from his body in terms of his relationship to sin. The soul and spirit are part of the kingdom of God with Christ as its head, and as new creatures in Christ, they no longer desire or are dominated by sin. In fact, they don't like sin. But because we have these bodies that house rebellious sin against God, there is still a strong sinful influence within us that believers must learn to put down, or as it says here in chapter 4, to put off, or to kill, to crucify, to mortify. All of those words basically describe the same thing. Also, because these corrupt bodies are tied to the kingdom of darkness, spiritually, that means that Satan also still has an open door to attack us and accuse us and tempt us. Paul generally calls this spiritually vulnerable part of us in our bodies, he generally calls that our flesh. The NIV translates flesh sinful nature. That's a horrible translation. It's not sinful nature. We'll see that's not true. But it is this sinful flesh because it's related to our bodies. Because the flesh is still corrupt, and still under the kingdom of darkness, if a believer allows this fleshly fallen part to control us, then our lives can look exactly like that of an unbeliever. Same passions, same sinful desires. And this is why Christians, who are genuinely Christians, but who have terrible desires and, and act out on those sometimes, will wonder, how can I be a Christian? Well, in some cases, they aren't Christians. <laughs> but in some cases, they are. But guess what? Their flesh is in control. And our sinful flesh is exactly like the old, dead, sinful nature, the old self we had when we were unconverted. Now, the moment the believer dies, the sinful flesh dies. And that means that at our death, we're going to be completely set free from the power of sin and will no longer be vulnerable to temptation and sin. That explains why our existence on earth is marked by this spiritual tension that exists in us. Because on the one hand, we, that is our personalities, our souls, our spirits, are new creatures in Christ, part of the new humanity. But our old self, as Paul refers to that here in Ephesians 4, is still with us. But, this is where it gets a little confusing, Paul says in Romans 6, 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin, there's the body of sin, might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The crucifixion of the old self with Christ, Paul says, 
gives us the ability to defeat the indwelling sin in these bodies so that we would no longer live as slaves to sin. But of course we have to learn how to do that. Paul reveals this same truth in Colossians chapter 3, but he uses the same language he uses in Ephesians 4 a little bit differently. In verse 9 he says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. There Paul says, You have, past tense, put off the old self. But the question that raises, of course, which I hope you're asking, is in verse 22, Paul says that one element of living like a believer is that we need to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Well, how does that relate to Romans chapter 6, where it says the old self was crucified? Or Colossians chapter 3, where it says you have already put off the old self. Okay? In those verses, Paul reveals that this putting off, this crucifying of the old self, has already happened past tense. It happens when a believer is united with Christ. But in our text for this morning, he says that the one element of living the Christian life is that believers are actively, continuously to put off your old self. Christians have to do that if they want to defeat the power of sin. So the obvious question is, if the old self is dead, if it's crucified, if we have put it off, why do we need to keep putting it off? That just seems horribly redundant, doesn't it? You need to feel the tension there. If you don't get that tension there, you're not going to understand this. Those two things are not compatible until you understand what the New Testament teaches. Some of the men in the men's retreat, we went over this. The Bible frequently declares these two seemingly contradictory sets of truths at the same time. It does this all the time. If you're looking for it, you'll see it. It sounds like double talk to us, but we see this in many places like 1 Corinthians 5.7. First, Paul commands believers, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. That's pretty clear. This is a call to holiness because leaven in the Bible, of course, represents sin. Paul compares this to bread that is filled with the old leaven of enslaving sin. And he says, cleanse it out. Get it out. Put it off. We all want that. But notice what he says next in the same verse. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Curly on the three stooges, right? <laughs> How's this work? For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Don't miss this. Paul says, cleanse out the sin because your sin has been cleansed. Or to use today's text, put off your old self because as we saw in Colossians chapter 3, your old self was put off. Your old self was crucified. That's not theological double talk. He's saying that the ground of your ability to cleanse yourself or to put off your sin, the reason it is possible for you to do that is the fact that you have been cleansed. Your sin has already been put off. Now what that means is that in the case of 1 Corinthians 5, the leaven of sin in you that you need to cleanse yourself, that sin is alien really important to get that. That sin is alien to you. It dwells in your body, but it is not native to your soul and spirit that have been made alive through Christ. Though sin is still present through our sinful flesh, it does not belong to our new nature. And Paul is saying that we must see ourselves because we really are unleavened. 
We must see ourselves as unleavened. People who see themselves as wicked and enslaved to sin will never get victory over their sin because they're not operating out of faith. He's saying that the ground on which we are to stand as we work to remove the leaven of sin, as we try to put off the old nature, the old self, I should say, which means things like warring against sins like lust and covetousness or people-pleasing by believing the truth. That is, having faith in the truth that we have been cleansed. That means if you're not fighting against your sin from the ground of faith that you have been cleansed from sin, then you cannot fight and kill sin. I hope we see how indispensably important this is. The reason why so many believers struggle unnecessarily with sin is because the way they view themselves is not according to faith and not according to truth. And if it's not true, it's not going to work. And if there's no faith, there's no power. Because faith is what hooks you into the power of the Holy Spirit. When you believe the right things, the Spirit of God will work in you. When you don't believe the right things, the Spirit of God says, He's not believing the right things. I'm done. For now. What he's saying is you, is say, you must live holy, sanctified lives because you are holy. God has made you holy in your new nature. To use theological language, you're to be more sanctified because you've been justified. You've been made holy. That's the gospel. We must believe the truth of the gospel as it relates to our new relationship to sin. Once you learn to recognize this, you see it all over the place. We already read it in Colossians 3. You probably didn't see it because you weren't looking for it. Let me read it again. He says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. It's there, isn't it? The same dynamic is there. Paul tells us first who we are because of what God has done for us in Jesus. We have with Christ died to sin. We have a new relationship to sin. It's no longer for sin to enslave us. We've been raised with Christ. We now operate from a radically different spiritual position in Christ. We've been raised with him. We've been hidden in Christ with God. Those things are already factually true. They happened in the life of every believer. Christ is now our life, he says. We are hidden with God. We will appear with him in glory. All of that is true. Those are all glorious truths. What God has done. Past tense for us in Christ. But notice in verse 5, he finishes the thought by saying, put to death therefore. You hear that? Put to death therefore. What is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Again, the crucial word is therefore, which means because. That means he's saying because God has spiritually relocated you to heaven through the death and resurrection of Jesus, which you shared in, because your new home is heaven from which you will appear with Christ in glory when he returns, because Christ is your life, because that is who you are, Therefore, be that person by not living like the person who belongs to this world. Live like a citizen of heaven because that's who you are. That is where you are, spiritually speaking. If you ever counsel anyone who's coming to you and say, I just can't get over this sin. It's happened again and again and again. There may be a lot of things you need to tell that person, but one of the things, if you're sure they're a Christian, is that's not who you are. 
one of the things you have to say is that's not who you are. This is why learning to have faith in the truth about what God says about us and what he's done for us, our biblical identity through the gospel is so crucial. This is one reason why without faith it's impossible to please God, because you're not believing the right thing about what he says about you, about what he's done for you. Because Paul roots our obedience to God, which includes putting off our old self, he roots that in trusting in the truth of who God has made us as new creations. Okay, all of that is review. All of that is backdrop. Now we can understand what he's saying here. So Paul says this element of living the Christian life is to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Now we're going to look more at how we put off our old self next week, but putting off the old self is another way of saying crucify your flesh or put to death what is earthly in you, which is what he says in other places. Again, the reason we can put off our old self is because according to Colossians, you have put off your old self when you were united with Christ. Paul says here, the old self belongs to your former manner of life. There it is, right? That's, that's identity talk. The reason you must put off your former manner of life is because that is not any longer who you are. That's former life. That's who you used to be. That's not who you are now. Put it off because that's not who you are. The implicit question being asked is, you have been made new, born again, cleansed, united, raised to heaven with Christ. That's who you are. So why would you act in a manner that is alien to who God has made you in Christ? That is exactly the question that Paul asks in Romans chapter 6. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Same question. Why would you continue to live in a sin when you have a new relationship to sin? You've died to sin. Sin is alien to your new nature, so why would you go back to your former manner of life? Paul concludes this verse saying of his former way of life that it is corrupt through deceitful desires. At the heart of all sin is desire. Desire is the heart of everything we do, for the most part, and that includes sin. We lust because we desire sexual pleasure. We covet because we desire more stuff. We try to impress other people because we desire that they admire us. It's those sinful desires that are at the heart of the corrupt manner of our old or our former lives. We were filled with these deceitful desires. Our lives orbited around our never-ending quest to satisfy these deceitful desires. And these sinful desires are deceitful because they lie to us. They make promises to us that they can never keep. If I sleep with her, I would feel fulfilled and affirmed. If I had that job or that salary or that pension or that car or that boat or that house, I would be happy. Those are all lies. And the unbeliever, because he has a futile mind, believes those lies. Believers, however, are learning that those desires are deceitful and what they actually tempt us to do is to pull us away from the one person who can fulfill us and affirm us and make us happy and content. They're deceitful in that they also pull us away from the only source of joy 
that those deceitful promises could never deliver. So how do we apply this? I trust a lot of this has been self-applying as you're trying to plug this in. But let me just ask two broad questions. Does the variety of Christianity that you practice totally revolve around the person of Jesus Christ? This is a really basic question, and yet it's amazing how many people can't answer this in the affirmative that are in evangelical churches every week. As you think about how you understand, how you live, how you relate to Christianity, your Christianity, is it more of a moral code? Or a religion? Or a ritual? Or a family tradition? That's not true. None of those. Are you absolutely enraptured with Jesus? Is he your life? Do you see your death as a gain for you? Because in death, you get more of Jesus. If you can't answer those questions in the affirmative, you have some significant spiritual work to do to see if you're a Christian. Second, do you understand how important having the right spiritual identity is? And do you fight off sin by trusting that God has given you a new nature where sin and its enslaving power is alien to you? That's a long sentence. Do you understand how important having the right spiritual identity is? And do you fight off sin by trusting that God has given you a new nature where sin and its enslaving power is alien to you? This is so important. If you must, if you're to put off the old self, kill sin, crucify sin, whatever you want to call it, you must know and believe who you are, what God has done for you in the gospel. It's really about believing the gospel as it relates to who you are. Everything relates to the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. That includes sanctification. That includes everything related to salvation. And in this case, it's believing what the gospel says about what God has done for you in Jesus. If you don't believe that, you can't live a holy life because it's all rooted in faith. You can't please God without faith. So find claims and promises you can find them on the internet <laughs> about your new identity in Christ and you preach those, self, those things to yourself every day. That's what we talk about. That's part of what we mean when we say preach the gospel to yourself every day. Preach the truth of the gospel and what that means to who you are every day. And as you do that, by the grace of God, the word of God will renew your mind. It'll get into your heart and you'll start to operate from the ground of that's not who I am. Why would I want to do that? That's not who I am. This is how we grow to maturity in Christ, which is Paul's concern. May God give us the grace to live as Christians as we put off our old selves and believe what God has done for us in Christ for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Father, there's a lot here, and we've gone over a lot, but this is so crucial. This is so important, and we're just so grateful that you don't leave us in the dark about how all this stuff works that we don't have to claw and scratch for years and years and years and try and figure this stuff out because it's in the Word. And God, we're just so grateful for that. And I pray for myself. I struggle too. I pray for all of us that you would please enable us to believe the truth about what you've done for us in Jesus and who we are because of what you've done for us. And then from that ground, we can fight sin. We can put it away. Help us to do that, we pray for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen. Amen.